The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. Well, you can turn your Bibles to Revelation 15. Revelation 15. Uh, this week, uh, Heidi and I had the opportunity to go to a, a small, I guess, invitation-only a pastor and pastor's wives retreat out at Ironwood, and we had a great time. And uh, it was a small group, maybe 30 people or so, got to meet some new people and uh, fellowship with some of our friends. Um, and so it was great. We, had, we really enjoyed it, but, but it also meant that I was only in the office for two days this week. So we were out there uh, Monday to Wednesday, and so I didn't have a whole lot of time for sermon prep. So uh, this morning... Uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to preach the sermon uh, that I was asked to preach to the group on Wednesday morning. And, um, and so my assignment uh, for uh, the service on Wednesday, and I guess all four of us that spoke during the, ser- or during the week, our assignment was to preach on a truth about God that keeps me personally motivated and or encouraged in pastoral ministry. Now that's a great question for a pastor to think about. Now, what truth is it that, that keeps me encouraged? I think especially, and my, my thought when I read the question was initially, what truth keeps me motivated, what truth keeps me encouraged when, I am, when, when ministry is disappointing and when it's painful, as it oftentimes is? You know, but, but as I thought about the question more, what truth do I, keeps my soul motivated and, and anchored as I thought about more, I thought, you know, I, I need to think as well from the other side, what truth do I cling to about God when life is good and when there are blessings in life? Because, you know, I, I think, you know, blessings oftentimes threaten our faith, threaten our commitment to God more than trials do. When life is hard, we, we know we've got to run to God because we've got nowhere else to turn. When life is good and blessed, sometimes we begin to think, I've got this figured out, and I don't really need God all that much, and so we start to lean on ourselves. And so the question is also a good question for any Christian to consider. What truth about God keeps you personally motivated or encouraged throughout life? Now, what do you cling to, and and what is a blessing to your soul? And we could have a great testimony service today just thinking through Uh, attributes of God, characteristics, truths about God that that anchor and motivate our souls. And and as you can see on the screen, uh, I immediately knew that that above all else for me, the goodness of God is the truth about God that that I cling to and and love uh, above everything else. And so last week, as as I was preparing uh, to preach out the camp, I I spent extra time uh, studying and meditating on God's goodness. And, And I had a blast doing it. I don't think there's any, any uh, theological, exegetical study that I enjoy more than, than doing studies on, on theology proper, the doctrine of God, who God is. It's just a rich, rich subject to spend time thinking about. And so I had a blast putting the study together, and I felt like I'd, I'd study, I'd work on this for a couple hours, and I'd get done, and I, you know, I felt like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, you know, just, just full of glory. Uh, thinking about who God is and, and how wonderful He is. And, and I pray uh, that, that, that just walking through this doctrine today will be half the blessing to you that it was to me uh, last week. 
And so I'm going to tell you up front, this is going to be a little bit different sermon uh, than, than normal. I, uh, it's going to be a, a true topical sermon. It's been a long time since I've uh, done one of those. And uh, we're going to read lots of verses this morning. And I'm going to put up some longer quotes on the screen. And a couple of those quotes are a little bit challenging to follow, all right? Because they're not written for, for kindergarten. They're written for uh, more scholastic studies. Uh, but if you track with me, and if you push yourself to think deeply about this attribute of God, the goodness of God, I think it'll be a blessing. I know it'll be a blessing to your soul. Because there is nothing more precious, nothing more valuable for us as Christians than to know the glory of God and to be near to Him. And so, and we'll also make a number of very important applications along the way, especially at the end of the sermon. So, so let's begin today. Let's think about the goodness of God. Let's begin with a couple of definitions of what do we mean that God is good. So this one is from, uh, turn on the remote, uh, this one is from Louis Burkhoff. And he says, we speak of something as good when it answers in all parts to the ideal. Hence, in our ascription of goodness to God, the fundamental idea is that he is in every way all that he as God should be, and therefore answers perfectly to the ideal expressed in the word God. He is good in the metaphysical sense of the word, absolute perfection and perfect bliss in himself. It is in this sense that Jesus said to the young ruler, none is good save one, even God. But since God is good in himself, he is also good for his creatures. He is the fountain of of all good. And then J.I. Packer, uh, I, I love this uh, statement from J.I. Packer uh, from his wonderful book, Knowing God. He says, goodness in God as in man means something admirable, attractive, and praiseworthy. When the biblical writers call God good, they are thinking in general of all those moral qualities which prompt his people to call him perfect. And in particular, of the generosity which moves them to call him merciful and gracious and to speak of his love. So, so both of those definitions reflect the fact that theologians typically view God's goodness as his overarching moral attribute. So if you've ever been through a study of, of, of the doctrine of God, typically uh, theologians put the attributes of God in two categories. God's attributes of greatness and his attributes of goodness. Or, or you could also say his incommunicable attributes, meaning ones that, that we cannot take on ourselves. Like, like, I am not striving to become omnipresent or omniscient because I can't, I can't be everywhere at the same time. So, so there are some attributes of God's greatness that, that I will never have, all right? But, but then his communicable attributes or his attributes of goodness are the ones that I am to take on myself. They are his moral, ethical qualities. And so goodness is seen as the overarching quality that stands over all of God's moral attributes. And, um, and so God is, is both absolutely pure and perfect. He is holy, righteous, and just. But he is also compassionate, merciful, and gracious. Put it simply, as Psalm 119, verse 68 says, you are good and do good. That's a great verse. And so let's think first more deeply about the fact that God is 
absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. He is pure in every sense. And the Bible speaks a number of times about the fact that, that God is pure goodness. So I have four references up here. Uh, first of all, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. This is a great verse. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Psalm 18, verse 30 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. 1 John 1, verse 5. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. That's an incredible verse. Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, so the Bible teaches that, that God is absolute perfection. There is no evil. There is no taint of sin or wickedness or deceit or, or untruthfulness in God at all. He is absolute perfection. Now, now that raises, though, a, a very important question. And it's one of the most complicated, uh, difficult objections that, that people have to Christianity, and that is the problem of evil. So specifically, if God is absolute perfection, then, then why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? How can God be good and the world be filled with so much evil? So then the question comes up, well, if there is so much evil in the world and God is the standard of good, is God really good? Or is God... You know, is God's goodness arbitrary? Is he just kind of making up goodness as he goes? Like one day, this is good. And the next day, all this other horrible stuff is good. And God's just kind of making it up depending on his mood and depending on how we slept the night before. So is God really good? Or is goodness arbitrary? John Frame summarizes the issue when he says, if we say both God is good and good is whatever God is, then God's goodness could be anything at all. When we make God our standard of goodness, he could hate the righteous, reward wickedness, and betray his friends. But those actions would be good simply because God did them. Now, now that might sound like philosophical jargon that doesn't mean much, but it means a lot when life gets dark and when life becomes difficult. I imagine that all of us have had times where we have questioned the goodness of God. We look at our circumstances and, and we think, God, there, I mean, how could you be good and allow this to happen? Or you just watch some horrible event unfold on the news and, and you look at mass destruction and pain and sorrow and, and you wonder how in the world could a good God let that happen? And, and so we can begin to think, well, maybe God is just kind of making it up as he goes. And maybe there is no objective goodness in God. Well, well, the problem of evil is, is a huge question. And there are massive books that have been written just on that one issue. And we can't fully unpack it today. But, but I think uh, John Frame puts us on a right track when he answers by saying that, that when someone says that for God to be his own standard, of that, that, yeah, let me start over. When someone says that for God to be his own standard allows him to be an arbitrary despot, declaring what is good today to be evil tomorrow, the critic is not dealing with the reality of God's revelation. 
The God who reveals himself in all creation is simply not that kind of person. We do not know him as an arbitrary despot. We have heard of arbitrary despots, but our God is not like them. And to that I say amen. And God's goodness is not arbitrary. It is firm. And it is truly good. And all of God's good works prove the true, genuine goodness of God. And of course, nowhere is the goodness of God more apparent than in the cross. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrates His love towards us. He proved His love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you ever have questions about the goodness of God, that the first place you run is to the cross. And you see that God is good. Now, now that doesn't mean that we always clearly see the goodness of God in all of our, in, in, or, or that we fully understand His purposes. You know, and, and it doesn't mean that there isn't true evil in the world. There is. But, but just because we cannot see the goodness of God in a particular situation does not mean that He is evil. It just simply means that our perspective is limited. And my favorite illustration of that is here in Revelation 15. You know, because, because someday during the tribulation period, I mean, God is going to pour out His wrath on the earth. I mean, there is going to be mass destruction and mass sorrow and pain and difficulty. And if there was ever a time where, where we might think maybe God is not good, it would be in the events of the tribulation. And yet, notice the scene in heaven in in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Now, folks, that's a heavy statement to think about. To think about the wrath of God being finished, being fully poured out on the sins of humanity. You know, you begin to imagine the the, the pain, the sorrow, the anguish that will take place. It is overwhelming. But but then, John's eyes turn towards the people who are in heaven. It says in verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass Holding harps of God. So, so, so God's throne is surrounded by the martyrs who have died during the tribulation period. And, and I believe all the church-age saints are, are there as well. And then notice their response to the judgment of God. It says in verse 3, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for the nations will come and worship before you. Now, folks, when when we see God and we gain a, a fuller perspective of his glory and power, and then we watch him pour out his judgment on the earth, we will not sit there and question the goodness of God. We will not accuse him of evil. No, when our perspective is whole and we understand who God is and just how wretched and horrible sin is, we will worship Him 
as he pours out his wrath on the earth. And so the issue is not that God is evil in in the pains and sorrows of life. The issue is is that most of the time we we have just a, a fragment of an understanding of who he is and all that he is doing in the world. And so the issue is our perspective. The issue is not in God. And so when you don't understand God's ways, resist the urge to accuse God of evil. Instead, bring your complaint to God. Anchor your mind in his goodness and the demonstration of that goodness in the cross. And then just be humble enough to admit that God knows better than you do what is truly good. You don't know goodness like God does. He is absolute perfection. So so all that said, let's go back to this idea again that God is absolute perfection. I mean, isn't it just incredible to imagine God's absolute perfection? It's it's incomprehensible because I'm a sinner, right? And so I, I can't escape the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know, my heart is deceitful. You know, and so I never love perfectly. I never have entirely pure motives, and neither do you. I mean, we are always a mixture of, of sin and selfishness and pride and then a desire for what is true. And so, and so I'm imperfect. You know, I mean, there, there's times, you know, where, where you know, yeah, I, I never do something with perfect motives. Neither do you. You know, sometimes I take pleasure in watching my kids squirm. You ever play a joke on your kids? And they're sitting there and they're, you know, they're getting a little nervous and you're just kind of like having a good time watching them get anxious. You know, and it's a joke, you know, right? We don't do that too far. You know, but, but, but our hearts are not perfect. Our hearts are sinful and deceitful. And of course, we, we live in a world full of, of wicked sinners as well. And so, because we live in a world of sin, we're, we're cynical people. And we assume that, that, there, that every, the, the public persona of a politician or of a celebrity or even of a famous pastor, that there's got to be more to it than what we see. There's corruption, there's wickedness, there's hypocrisy down there somewhere, even if we can't see it. And folks, we have a hard time imagining sincere goodness because it's not normal. And in fact, true goodness is non-existent in this world. It's non-existent. But God is pure goodness. There is no hint of evil in any of his desires, any of his thoughts, any of his actions. God never has a hidden evil agenda in anything that he does. He never takes pleasure in your pain. He never you know, uses you for some evil end. And, and it's just absolutely incredible to ponder that absolute perfection of God. And it's even more incredible to think that God's every thought, intention, and action towards you flows from perfect goodness. Everything He does is just, right, and perfect. He's, he's, he's absolute perfection. And that is incredible to consider. But, but the primary focus of God's goodness in Scripture is not 
his absolute perfection. No, instead, when, when the Bible talks about the goodness of God, the primary emphasis is in the fact that God does what is good, that, that he is generous towards his people. So, so turn now to the other end of your Bible, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And, and the context of this, and I've quoted this passage before, uh, but, but the context of this passage, of course, is, is that in, in Exodus chapter 32, Israel commits their sin with the golden calf. And God is on the mountain. And, and He has revealed His glory. He is in the process of, of giving the law to Moses. He has said audibly, you shall make no graven images. They've heard Him say that. And here they are, making a golden calf. They are defying the second of the Ten Commandments, with God on top of the mountain. And so God should have destroyed them. God should have walked away from them. And, and in fact, uh, he, he says to Moses that He will. And Moses pleads for mercy from God. And the, and the story makes clear that there was nothing in Israel that demanded a merciful, gracious response from God. They should have been judged for their wickedness. But God assures Moses that he is going to forgive their sin. And then, and then Moses asks to see God's glory. And, and, and you know the story uh, that, that God uh, answers, he responds, and he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand as he passes by. And as God is passing by in his glory, he, he describes himself to Moses. And, and if God is describing himself to us, our ears ought to perk up, Right? This is God's description of himself. And he says in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, of course, God gets to wrath, right, at the end of these verses. But first and foremost, he says to Moses that he wants to be known as a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And theologians uh, typically agree, agree that this benevolent kindness in God is the primary emphasis when the Bible describes God as good. So, so John Feinberg uh, says, um, says in his book, he says, uh, when we look at the biblical concept of divine goodness, one major idea stands out. It is that God is concerned about the well-being of his creatures and does things to promote it. Of course, God is interested in doing what is morally good and right, but biblical writers capture that idea by re referring to his righteousness and holiness. Moreover, because he does what is righteous and holy in his dealings with all, the result is the promotion of their well-being or their spiritual benefit. God seeks our good. And then I love this uh, quote for, by J.I. Packer. He says that God's goodness is the quality of generosity. Generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive 
and is not limited by what the recipients deserve, but consistently goes beyond it. Generosity expresses the simple wish that others should have what they need to make them happy. Generosity is, so to speak, the focal point of God's moral perfection. It is the quality which determines how all God's other excellences are to be displayed. God is abundant in goodness, spontaneously good, overflowing with generosity. Do you read that quote and and almost think, that's too good to be true? Right? Like, like when I read that, that was mine. That, you're going a little too far, Packer. You know, God desires my happiness. Is that so? You know, do, do I believe that? Or how about that statement that generosity is the focal point of God's moral perfections? Now, now of course, God is much more than generosity. He is much more than goodness. He is holy and righteous and true. But God says in the passage we read a moment ago that he fundamentally wants to be known for his generosity and goodness. And that is an amazing thought to consider. That's an amazing thought to consider. That the God of heaven and earth is is giving. He is generous to his people. And and so because of that, God's goodness drives several other wonderful attributes. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, says that, um, says God's mercy is his goodness toward those in distress. His grace is his goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And his patience is his goodness toward those who continue to sin over a period of time. And so, James 1, verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So so every good thing you have in your life. You know, think of all the... Yeah, maybe. I mean, certainly we we tend to notice all the bad things in life. But think about all the good things that you enjoy in your life. Your your family, your friendships, the the good food you enjoy, the the house you live in, the beautiful weather that, that we so often enjoy. God says that every good thing you have is a manifestation of the generosity and kindness of God. And praise the Lord, that that goodness never changes. He only gives good gifts. So so God is good. He is good. And we can see that goodness displayed throughout creation. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 65. I want to read several passages in the Psalms because they are so rich and so wonderful to see. Turn to Psalm 65. And I want to read verses 9 through 13. This passage, I think, beautifully describes the goodness of God as seen in His creation. Psalm 65, verse 9 says, You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. 
You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty. Your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Now, folks, that is a beautiful description of the goodness of God. But but imagine the impact that this sort of passage would have had in a world that didn't have Costco. Right? Like, like we have no concept of, of not having food. Like, we can go to all these stores around town, and there is food everywhere. You know, but think of an agrarian culture in a, in a relatively arid climate. And, and, what, and what the psalmist here is describing is overflowing goodness. Hills covered in flocks. Lots of water. You know, a bountiful products and harvests. And he's saying in all of it that God's beauty and God's goodness is everywhere around us. You know, so, so just think about the fact you know, that, that God and God's goodness is so apparent in, in, in just oh, so many things around us. Now think about the fact that, that God didn't just make our world functional. He made it beautiful. You know, for, for the world to be functional, the sun needs to rise and it needs to set so that we have sunshine and warmth and also so that we can have rest and cool. But God doesn't just make the sun rise and set. He generally makes it beautiful. It's full of color and, and variety and creativity. And, and all of that is a demonstration to us of the generosity of God. That, that he is not just a functional God. You know, he is good and he is beautiful and he is caring. And then turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Because God's goodness is apparent in, in all that he has made, but God's goodness is especially apparent towards the chief of his creations, which is mankind. And... Um, God says in Psalm 145, verses 14 through 16, it says, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Acts uh, 17, verse 25 says, He Himself gives to all people, whether they're righteous or unrighteous, He gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is good to all people. But, But if you're in Christ, if you're a child of God, you have God's goodness in an even more special way. Because read on, look at what He says in verses 17 through 20. It says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him. What an incredible statement that is. If you are in Christ God is near to you, 
And God is good to you in manifold ways. He is a generous, loving Father. And so do you believe the truth of Psalm 84, verse 11? The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is never stingy with His gifts. He gives every good thing to His people. And again, if you have any continued doubts about the generosity and kindness of God, just look at the Gospel. So, so 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When you did not want anything to do with God, God sent Christ, and we've talked uh, the last few weeks about this concept of propitiation, that Jesus took God's wrath against my sin on Himself. And He suffered in my place. And then, uh, Titus chapter 3 goes on and, and, and just reminds us again of the goodness of God in the Gospel. It says, For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And there wasn't anything lovely about you when God found you. There was nothing in you that was worthy of His care and compassion. There was nothing in you that demanded God's love for you. But, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The kindness and the love of God is what brought you to Christ. And that is the basis of your salvation. And, and gospel grace continues to flow for all who are in Christ. So Romans chapter 8, verse 32. I love the rhetorical question that Paul asks here. He says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Now, now, the all things there is specifically in context, all the grace and strength we need to persevere in godliness and to pursue sanctification. So, so He's saying there that God will give us all that we need to grow in Him, to serve Him, to be conformed to the image of Christ. God's grace is overwhelmingly available to His children. So, so God is generous. God is generous to us. So, so what do we do with all this? How should we respond to the goodness of God? Well, well, I'd like to just make four applications. And the first is, take refuge in God's goodness. Take refuge in God's goodness. I love Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. David says, O oh, taste and see the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Isn't that incredible? 
Now, now that doesn't mean that you never want something, because we all want many things. But, But God satisfies, and God provides what is truly good to His children. And so often when trouble comes, we look everywhere for answers except to the Lord. We want to fix it. We want to solve it. We, we want to make our own way. But, but, but remember David's invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So run to Him. Walk in holiness so that you can be near to Him. Meditate on His glories and enjoy His presence. Taste the goodness of God constantly. Anchor your soul in Him. Through every challenge, through every fear, and through every blessing, see and experience the goodness of God. And then as well, uh, Psalm 73, and this is another passage that uh, is is in the context of of a lament, of, of the prosperity of the wicked, the suffering of the righteous. And he concludes with these wonderful words. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But here's the key statement. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I hope that's the cry of your heart. That you will find refuge in the goodness of God and rest in Him, and desire Him above all else. And then a second application is pray about your needs. And um, I love Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Have you ever been afraid to ask God for something big? Because that's just too much to ask for. And of course, we, we, of course, we have to preface all that by, by understanding that, that God is, is, has higher priorities than our temporal comfort. And, and of course, sometimes what we think is good actually is bad. But, but what Jesus is saying here is that God is generous. You know, a good father delights in the happiness of his kids. Right? I mean, if, if you're, if we all have parents, and if you had good parents, you, you know that, that your parents delight in your happiness. And if you have kids, you delight in the happiness of your kids. You love to see your kids happy. And so Jesus says, your father delights in giving you good things. So ask him. Run to God with your needs. And then a third application, embrace whatever God deems good. And so Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, or 29, 
uh, says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Some of you have heard me tell this story, and so I apologize for that, but, but, but this passage really hit home to me, for me uh, back in 2007 when we were buying our first house. And we bought a foreclosed house and we were living in Michigan. And, and, and you know, like any time you buy a foreclosed house, everything goes wrong, right? And, and, and we, it took us forever to get into this house. We were living in a friend's basement. And, um, and just like, there was just challenge after challenge after challenge. And finally, it's moving day. Finally, it's moving day. So I start calling around to get a truck, and guess what? Nobody has a moving truck. And I remember saying to God, God, can't you make one thing easy? Like, just one thing! And then I read Romans 8 in my devotions that morning, and I came across this passage, and, and, and you see there in verse 29 that what is good is not my comfort. What is good is that I be conformed to the image of Christ. Because when I am conformed to the image of Christ, I mean, that is the key to all blessing, right? I mean, the nearness of God is my good. So if the nearness of God is my good, then the best thing God can do in my life is to form Christ in me. And God is doing that. God is at work in His people you know, and the issue, the problem so much of the time, the reason we don't see the goodness of God is not because God's not being good. It's because we value our comfort more than we value Christ-likeness. We value our comfort more than we do the nearness of God. And, and what we need to, to recognize and what we need to see, what we need to value is the nearness of God. And believe that that is my good. And so I want holiness. Because I want to be near to Jesus. I want Him present in my life. Not for my glory, but for His. And so, and so we need to embrace what God deems good and trust Him. That He is sanctifying us. He is changing us. So, so, so do not let comfort be the definition of good. Let Christ-likeness be the definition of good. And go after it with all your heart. And then finally, imitate God's goodness. And 3 John, verse 11, says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. And so, again, I mean, the best thing I can have, that the highest treasure is to be holy, is to be good like God is, so that I can be near to Him. So, so pursue perfection. You're not going to make it in this life, but pursue perfection. Pursue His absolute perfection and then be generous as God is generous so that you can stay near to God and enjoy the goodness of His presence. Folks, God is good. He is good. So rest in the goodness of God through seasons of disappointment and pain. 
And then anchor your soul in the goodness of God into seasons of blessing. And see that every good thing you have is just simply a demonstration of the kindness of God, not of anything in you. And then pursue the goodness of God with all your strength. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we serve a good God. Lord, we thank you that there is no hint of sin or evil or vice in you. You are pure goodness, holiness, righteousness, truth, mercy, grace, compassion, patience, and on and on we could go. And so, Lord, I pray that you would transform our affections, that we would love you and desire you more than anything else this world has to offer. And may we find our joy in the nearness of God and not in the things of this world. And Father, I pray that we would trust you in the hard times and that we would glorify you in times of blessing and that, God, we would strive after you and that we would manifest your holiness and your kindness in every relationship and everything that we do and say. And so, God, I pray, uh, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would take these words, take the truth of Scripture, and minister to each heart. And, Father, I pray that we would be changed and that, Lord, we would seek you, trust you, and serve you. In Christ's name.